If you have your Bibles with you this morning, please open them up to the book of Acts. I'll be reading from Acts chapter 14, verses 19 through 23. And we'll be reading from the King James Version. And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium, who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, and had taught many, they returned again to Listeria, and to Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples, and exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. The foundation of the New Testament church is Christ Jesus. The psalmist asked a question. Psalm 11, verse 3, he said, If the foundations of the church be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Part of Satan's plan has always been to destroy the foundations upon which God has built His commandments, His truth, His church, His organization from the beginning all the way up until today. Now, the foundations of church organization are determined by God. Recognized and implemented by godly men, and are essential to the identity of the work of the church. Now throughout history, throughout humanity's history, from the very beginning of time, Satan has done his best to interfere with God and his creation. In the garden, he wanted to destroy the foundation upon which God placed the first couple into the garden. He turned the truth into a lie, and because of their following after Satan, they were punished with exile from the paradise of Eden. He didn't stop there. During the Mosaic dispensation, he influenced Israel's leaders, especially uh, after the divided kingdom came about, to uh, uh, bring about idol worship in Jeroboam placed a golden calf in Dan. He placed one in Bethel. And the people followed his pattern and they began to worship idols. Jeroboam caused Israel to sin, but Israel would answer for that as well. When Christ established the church, He set forth the parameters of for every action in which it could possibly be involved. The pattern for entrance into the kingdom was set forth. We understand that through reading especially the book of Acts, we learn the process through which people were added to the Lord's church, Acts 2 verse 47. It began with hearing the gospel, not listening to the the religious leaders of the day. They were to listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ because uh, we gain our faith through the study of the Bible. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God, Romans uh, 10, 17. That brings about the desire for one to want to be faithful to God, and that necessitates repentance 
on the part of the individual turning their lives around to where they're facing God instead of facing away from Him, changing their lifestyles in whatever manner necessary, wherever they are in their lives, to, to conform their lives to what God wants. Confessing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, not confessing the sins of one's lives like many denominations teach. We confess the fact of Christ Jesus being the very Son of God, that He died on the cross and that He came out of the grave on the third day, and that He's ruling in the kingdom even at this hour. And we see that's what the Ethiopian eunuch did in Acts 8 verse 37. And following that, he went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and Philip baptized him. And he came up out of the water rejoicing, and he went on his way. That's the pattern. We can clearly see that in the New Testament. The pattern, for prop, the pattern for proper worship is defined for us. We understand Colossians 3.16, Ephesians 5.19, we are to lift up our voices in unity, and we are to sing praises unto God. The writer of Hebrews called it the fruit of our lips in the sacrifice. We are to observe the Lord's Supper every single first day of the week. I just finished the article series on that this week. We are to give of our means. We are to give sacrifice, give God the first fruits. He's always expected that. We know how we're to pray. Jesus defined the parameters of prayer for us. And we are to engage in those activities. But the idea is God told us how to do it. The pattern for proper fellowship among Christians and those who are not Christians clearly outlined in the Bible. We're not to have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, uh, Paul said. Rather, we are to rebuke them. We are to have fellowship with those of like precious faith, those who are faithful to God. We cannot fellowship the actions of someone who is not faithful to God. And of course, then that brings us to the organization of the church, clearly stated by God. God expects leaders. And that's the title of the sermon this morning. God expects leaders. However, Satan didn't stop what he was doing when he caused problems in the garden. He didn't stop what he was doing when he caused problems in Israel. He continues on, even until today, trying to cause problems. He does whatever he can do to disrupt the Lord's people. He does whatever he can do to convince someone that they know better. Now, if the foundation of the church, the organization of the church, is destroyed, Satan will triumph and the whole world will suffer for it. This morning, I want us to consider the notion of God expects leaders. Normally, I don't have too many topical sermons, but I think this is a very important idea to be studied and to examine. So I want us to notice the idea of God expects leaders. And the best way, at least in my mind, was to begin with the departure from His plan. That's our first point. As in all departures from God's commandments, it begins with God, with the rejection of God's authority and His, uh, commandments that he has placed for. When one rejects God, then automatically anything he does 
from that point onward is not pleasing in the sight of God. We, someone says, well, let's change something just a little bit. Well, if it's in the matter in the realm of expediency or the realm of opinion, that's no problem. Let's have the Lord's Supper before the sermon. Okay, we can do that. Let's separate the Lord's Supper and the uh, collection from doing the Lord's Supper before the sermon, doing the collection after the sermon. Great, not a problem. We can do that. Let's get red carpet next time instead of blue. Okay, we can do that if that's what what the people want to do. If that's a suggestion we can do. Let's meet at 8 o'clock in the morning. I don't really want to do that, but we can. We can do that, you know. So, if it's in the realm of opinion, that's not a problem. But when we begin to change certain things, then it becomes a big problem. Let's not use unleavened bread on the Lord's Supper. Let's do like the Mormon denomination and use loaf bread. Let's not use fruit of the vine anymore. Let's use water. Well, what about this? Let's do like a like most denominations in the world. Let's observe the Lord's Supper once a year or twice a year, once a quarter or something, or just whenever we feel like it. Now we're in the realm of causing a problem, aren't we? We need to do what God has said. The organization of the church is no different. God does not allow for one to place himself on par with God and legislate within God's church, Matthew fifteen fourteen. No one has the right to change God's laws. God does not care what time we meet on Sunday as long as we meet. He does not care when we take the Lord's Supper as long as it is on Sunday collectively. He doesn't care if we do it before or after. He doesn't mind at all. God doesn't care if we are in a situation where we meet only one time on Sunday. There are a lot of congregations in the world who cannot meet on a Sunday evening because they drive in for miles and miles away. And so they meet once on Sunday. Fortunately for us, that's not our case. So we can meet twice. Some congregations of the Lord's people do not meet during the week. That's okay. We're not commanded to meet during the week. It's it's wise to do that, but we are not commanded to do that. Jeremiah wisely stated, Jeremiah 10, 23, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Solomon declared this, Proverbs 14, verse 12, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Do you know how, we're going to study this on Sunday morning when we begin to look at the history of the church. Do you know how the Roman Catholic Church came about? Do you know how they started to come into form? It all began with the organization of the church. The very first Roman Catholic Church was comprised of apostate members of the Lord's Church. Here's what they did. Like any meeting, someone has to have someone to chair the meeting, right? You can't have everybody talking all the time. We do that here. We have a men's meeting and we have a chair. We have a couple different men who take turns doing that. And that is just expedient. It keeps... uh, Order, it keeps things running smoothly. Well, when you have elders, 
The same thing happens in an elders meeting. If you have a multitude of elders, and you have to have a plurality, you have to have at least two. One elder will chair the meeting. And normally, it's been my experience that they change that on a monthly basis or a quarterly basis. So this, the elder of this month is so-and-so. The elder of next month is so-and-so. If you have an issue, you want to put forth the eldership, you go talk to the, to the contact elder for this month. Well, that's how it was in the first century and following. Well, here's how the Catholic Church came about. What they decided to do was instead of rotating those contact elders or those elders who chaired the meeting, they chose one man. Nothing wrong with that. Well, over time, that one man began to be known as the bishop. Every other elder was just simply an elder. A bishop, an elder, a pastor, a presbyter, a shepherd, they're all the same. Those are different titles for the same office. Well, over time, the uh, the richer, more influential uh, churches in the area began to kind of overtake the poor country churches. So now you would have a bishop who would be in charge of an area. Now over time, what that has led to is uh, what they refer to as a diocese. The diocese of a certain area will have a certain person in charge of that. Now, of course, eventually, that led to the Pope. The Pope has usurped the authority of Christ. He calls himself Christ's vicar on earth. He's taken the power from Jesus and he's given it to himself. And he has claimed headship over the people of God and authority over all people. And that's what the Catholic Church has brought to the world. Now in time, courageous men stood up and said, this is not correct. They wanted to fight the teachings of the Catholic Church. And then what came about is what we know as the Reformation Movement. But the problem is those Protestants, and that term Protestant came from the idea that they protested against the Catholic Church. So those Protestants, though they they had good uh, hearts to want to go back to biblical teaching, they didn't quite go far enough. They rejected the teachings of the Catholic Church, but they didn't go back to the Bible. What's the problem when we don't do that? Nothing is fixed, right? We have to go back to the Bible. Now, those churches of human origin... They ignored the head of the church, who is Christ. They assumed self-government. Now, Jesus promised to build His church, Matthew 16, 18. And it should wear the name of the one who owns it, Romans 16, 16. Paul used throughout his writings the comparison of the husband-wife relationship to that of Jesus and the church. The church is the bride of Christ. The wife carries the name of the husband. They are identified. That doesn't mean that the husband's a dictator. Christ wasn't a dictator. But nonetheless, they carried the name of the husband. That's very important. Now, the theories on which those churches have organized their individual uh, churches are based on three ideas. First, they might use the Episcopal form of government. Now what that is, that recognizes three forms of clergy among the people. Deacons, usually young men, 
They serve as a type of apprenticeship. You have priests who are uh, in charge of parishes and things of that nature, and they wield a great power among the people of the church. And then you have the bishops who have an oversight of several parishes. Well, we just talked about the Catholic Church. They have that form of of uh, government. The Anglican Church has that form of government. The Greek Catholic Church has that form of government. The Methodist Episcopal Church has a modified form of that government, but you can't find that form of government in the Bible. Then you have the Presbytery form of government. Now this form does attempt to try to go back to the Bible to establish the correct leadership in the church because they want to have a plurality of elders. But those organizations who conform to that, they make a distinction. You have the preaching or teaching elders. You have the ruling elders. You know, uh, and, and they're laymen who are known to have leadership ability. The, the ministering or the preaching elders, they've had some kind of biblical training. You know, that's not even necessary. It's not necessary to go to a school to, to gain uh, biblical knowledge. It's expedient. It's very, very handy. And I appreciate it. I went to one myself. But some of the greatest preachers I've ever known were simply men who studied the book. Raccoon John Smith, one of the Restoration members, he had no kind of a uh, education. None. And he was one of the finest preachers. Then you have this congressional form of government. It's based on the theory that each local church is self-governing. Okay? All matters are settled by a vote of the membership. Everyone. Men, women, children, uh, visitors. It doesn't matter if you're in the group. You cast a vote. And you can decide on what needs to happen. Now, the Congregationalists and, and Baptist churches, they follow a form of congregational governing. And all of those differ in some way from one to the other. But what about the New Testament church? How's the New Testament church governed? Not by any of those forms. You don't find any of that in the Bible. All authority governing the church of which Christ established has been vested in the eldership of each congregation, Acts 20, verse 28. Now, are there instances where a congregation does not have an eldership? Yes. Are there instances when that is appropriate? Sure. Are there instances when that is not appropriate? Absolutely. So we have to look at each instance. Now, we see the problem, the rejection of God's plan. But that rejection finally led to a restoration of what God wanted. By faithful people who wanted to go back to the Bible and do things that God wanted to done in the ways God wanted them done. Again, that's known as the restoration movement. Such people as James O'Kelly, Rice Haggard, among others, they declared Christ as the only head of the church, the only person who can legislate, period, is Jesus Christ. And the Bible is the only rule of faith, period. Opinions do not matter. One particular person I listened to on the radio uh, from time to time, one of his common phrases is, facts do not care about your feelings. Of course, it's a political show. 
Facts do not care about your feelings. Well, really, truth does not care about opinion, right? When it comes to doctrine. Truth doesn't care about opinion. If I decide I want to do it a different way, well, I've departed from the truth. The last will and testament of the Springfield Presbytery, of which James O'Kelly and Rice Haggard were part, in 1804 it announced the intent of its writers to cease making laws for the government of the church and called for the church to be self-governing according to the simple gospel. And because of that, many people began to seek to go back to the New Testament Christianity for the church to be led and overseen by godly men chosen in a scriptural manner to govern the people of God. When Paul called the Ephesian elders to him, we mentioned Acts 20, 28, he said, Take heed unto yourselves and to the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseer. They were to feed the flock, to care for the flock. But what does a godly man have to first do before he can help someone else? Pay attention to himself. Am I doing it correctly? Am I doing what God wants me to do? Even among those who have made an attempt to return to the New Testament pattern, they've decided to make some changes, even within the Lord's church. Many have called for the ordaining of women to the office of elder and deacon. That's found nowhere in the New Testament. That doesn't mean God hates women. He's not a chauvinist. God loves Sisters, He loves His whole creation. He's given them a certain role to fulfill. And He's given men a role to fulfill. Many have established what they call house churches, meaning several small locations under the oversight of one eldership. Now that sounds a whole lot like what the Catholic Church did. Claiming apostleship in order to overthrow the authority of the eldership. Who can uh, uh, claim apostleship? We look at that and we say, that's, a, that's ridiculous. We cannot believe. It happens all the time throughout the world. People claiming apostleship. Exerting that elders have no authority beyond example. That's not true. We're to be in subjection to those who rule over us, the writer of Hebrews said. They refuse to subject or be subjected to the eldership and then they want to reevaluate and reaffirm. That's not found in the Bible. If men are qualified to be elders, then they are ordained to be elders. They're placed in that office. And until they become disqualified through a lifestyle or whatever the case may be, an elder should have a wife, is commanded to have a wife. When he no longer has a wife, what does that do? That prevents him from being an elder. Brother J.C. Watkins, when his wife passed away, he stepped down from the eldership. He no longer had a wife. He couldn't do that. Some claim that a man must be sinlessly perfect before he can serve as an elder. There's only been one man in this world who ever walked who was sinlessly perfect. And he died before the church was established. But his death caused the establishment. Declaring no man in the local church to be qualified, though there are or should be, in order to maintain unscriptural control. I knew of a congregation one time in Middle Tennessee, that they had qualified men who desired to be elders, and there was one man who was the trustee of the property and of the building, and he refused to allow men to be put in 
the office of the eldership. He changed the locks on the doors and would not allow them to enter. That sounds like a doctor fees of Second John. That's not what God wants. Just as unscriptural as those departures are, un- ungodly attitudes and attitudes of rebellion are just as wrong. When we refuse to submit to qualified elders, that's wrong. Whether that's by sowing discord among the brethren, uh, refusing to follow the 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 uh, demands placed on the membership in areas of expediency by the eldership, uh, threatening to quit or to withhold contributions, those who oppose the forming or sustaining of an eldership, when there ought to be one, that is wrong. Humanity has departed from God's commandments regarding organization of His people. But He made a determination in eternity to how the church was to be overseen. That's our second point. There's always a purpose to what God does. We may not understand exactly why He chose to do something a certain way, but He tells us the purpose. Baptism, for instance. What's the purpose? Washes our sins away. Peter said it saved us. Paul said it added us to the to the body of Christ. Luke recorded it added us to the church. Why did he choose water baptism? He didn't tell us. It doesn't matter. But we know the purpose. Now, if there were no leadership in the local church, or if leaders had no authority, how could the church function? It couldn't function, could it? You'd have mass hysteria. You'd have two people wanting to do this, three people wanting to do that. That doesn't make them bad folks. That just makes them people. We'll have to be under a leadership going in the same direction. To function properly, it's necessary for any organization to have some type of leadership. We can look back through the history of humanity. Every organization that has been successful has had a leadership or had a a leadership form. We can look at the marriage union, right? The husband's the head of the home. God chose that. But he has to perform properly, right? It's according to God. The Creator and the Sustainer of all things has the wisdom, the power, and the authority to determine the organization of His church. And that will accomplish His will and His commandments and His desires when we do that. To understand God purposed, planned, and prophesied. To understand that God prepared for His plan of salvation through Jesus Christ that He came to earth, He presented the plan of salvation, and then to turn around and say He gave no divine instruction on how the church was to be organized is not reasonable in any way. Perpetual disorganization undermines God's goals that He has determined to accomplish. J.W. McGarvey wrote this, If it be ascertained that any church government at all is divinely authorized, it must appear as a very singular circumstance if the form of that government is not indicated. Moreover, if we find a form of government in existence in the apostolic churches, we shall demand something above mere human judgment or experience to justify the abandonment of such or even a modification of it, no less than the same authority which institutes can abolish. We have to get God's commandments, right? God's will is there to be elders in every church. Acts 14, 
First uh, Timothy three, Titus one, Hebrews thirteen, Acts twenty. That's his will. That's his desire. That's what God wants. He is not authorized rule by a district, by a, di- a, a diocese, a general assembly, a synod, a council, a democracy, or mob rule. He has not uh, allowed any of that. Each congregation according to God's plan, is autonomous, meaning they are self-ruled under the authority of God. Now, why is that? Well, if the, if the Lord's church down the road goes into error, becomes apostate, it doesn't affect us here. That's God's wisdom. He's taking care and protecting the church, right? And so this arrangement doesn't mean we're isolationists. It doesn't mean that we cannot cooperate among other congregations to help support a, a particular work. But what it does mean is that we are protected from anything that would harm us. Speaking on elders, their work and qualifications at the Broadway Church of Christ in Lubbock, Texas, on October the 30th, 1950, Brother E.R. Harper discussed God's plan for the church. He said this, This great work may be carried out, Christ organized the local congregation and said over it over its affairs, elders, that they might form policies of the work in keeping with God's instructions. The deacons to serve the church under the elders, not over them. Teachers and preachers to assist in their respective fields. And the great body of the church to follow and join in the great program of work outlined by faithful and competent elders. Each of these is to respect the other and all are to function as the various organs of our bodies function that the body of Christ may be kept a healthy, vigorous, working organism. Knowing the history of departure regarding the organization of the church and other problems, we see God's determination for the organization of the church. Then what should our decision be? Regarding that, this is our third and final point. God's plan is perfect and right, and it cannot be wrong. Furthermore, God's plan always works if people will choose to follow Him, but we must settle for absolutely nothing less. That's what God desires. There is nothing any more clear in the Bible than the fact of churches having elders, and there's no other arrangement given in the New Testament of how a church is to be governed. Again, is it unscriptural not to have elders? That depends on the situation. A person can be scripturally, or an organization, a church can be scripturally unorganized, or they can be unscripturally unorganized. The church must be organized according to God's pattern in His alone. He's always demanded His patterns to be followed, hasn't He? When such is given, Hebrews 8, 5. If He gives a pattern, we're to follow it. When He instituted the, uh, the Great Commission, Jesus said, go into all the world. He didn't institute a pattern on how we were to do that. We can go by plane, train, automobile, boat. We can go, we can ride a horse. 
or a motorcycle. It doesn't matter. We can go here. I've ridden all of that in, in parts of the world. See, he didn't give a pattern. He just said go. He's given a pattern for organization. He's given a pattern for worship. He's given a pattern for doctrines. In view of that, what are the righteous to do? What's the righteous to do? What are we going to do? To be sure the church is organized properly, we have to go back to the Bible, right? So we go back to the Bible. Every or every congregation needs to go back to the Bible. They need to look at what the process is and to understand God expects leaders. We ought to stand up to that expectation. In regard to the local congregation, the church is to be organized under an eldership, a plurality of elders, at least two, and deacons to help carry out the work, Philippians 1.1. How can that be made happen? Well, we know the perfect plan. In order to institute, we have to prepare ourselves, don't we? This isn't something that happens overnight. It's not easy. For the church to be what God wants it to be, individuals have to be what God wants them to be, 1 Corinthians 12, 20. We need men who prepare themselves for the roles of elders and deacons. We need parents to encourage their sons to be elders and deacons. We need parents to encourage their daughters to grow up to be godly wives to help their sons to meet the expectations that God has placed before them. Those against scriptural organization, we need to answer them and we need to silence them. All should respect God's authority. His pattern of organization, we need to submit ourselves to it. We need to be faithful to Him. Just as the Bible specifically shows that churches in Jerusalem, churches in Ephesus, churches in Philippi, Churches on the island of Crete, all of those churches had elders. All churches to be scripturally organized need to have elders then and now. That aspect of the church's operation is just as important as its worship and its doctrinal teachings. It's just as important. The solution to most of the problems facing the church today is faithful elderships. People who will do what God wants them to do. Men who rule over the local congregation. Uh, they stop false teachers. They ensure only sound words are spoken from the pulpit. They put lazy and dishonest and immoral men out of the hypocrisy business, including preachers. They restore the unfaithful. They tend the flock. They lead the church of God in evangelism. They do all the things God expects the church to do, and they do their part. It would glorify God. It would exalt Christ. And it will follow the Word revealed by the Holy Spirit. And it will keep the church pure, and it will keep the church holy. Ephesians 5, 25-27 If the foundation of the church's organization is not what God wants, Good people mourn as they face the hindrance of standing up to things that are not right. And the world suffers. Sinful people rejoice because they think they have gotten away with something. Satan rejoices. He understands that 
he may very well have crippled a congregation of the Lord's people. Let's support proper scriptural organization of the church. It's just as important as our worship, and it's just as important as our doctrinal teachings. If you've never obeyed the gospel, do that today. We mentioned that, God's plan of salvation, how that happens. Faith, repentance, confession, immersion in water. If you've done that and you've fallen away, you've become unfaithful in some way, come back to God through repentance and confession, whether publicly or privately. God is just to forgive the one who asks for it. If you need to answer this invitation, do that as we stand and as we sing.